Children, you may be dismissed. Childish adults, you may be dismissed as well. So this morning we'll be talking about worry. Sometimes teachers teach us things because they're experts on them. Maybe it's something that they've mastered. Um, And this isn't something that I've really mastered, but when Pastor John gave the opportunity to an elder to preach, I thought this would be a way that I could grow. Um, So I've wrestled a lot with worry and anxiety. And as we end this year and kind of think about this upcoming year, sometimes we review what happened in the year before. And for many of us in the Acma Valley, we think about the fires. We think about brush fires. You might remember all the smoke that was in the air this summer. And at the Palmer household this summer, we had um, a fire that came close to our house. That's something we'll probably remember the most from 2017. So one night in July, um, it was about 10, 11 o'clock at night and got a phone call from a friend saying, hey, I think there's a fire that's close to, to your home. And I have been kind of desensitized to all the smoke that was in the air. Um, but I went outside and there were some emergency vehicles that were in our neighborhood and kind of started walking up the sidewalk and about three blocks away, there were some fire trucks and there was a police car. And this police car, they, they announced, prepare to evacuate. So I just fixate on the last word, evacuate, and scramble back to our home and woke up uh, my wife and the kids and we got our shoes on and grabbed my glasses and my cell phone and Bible and piled in the minivan and drove away. And in those, in those few minutes, I don't think I worried much at the time, but as I gathered with some other people from our neighborhood at a school about half a mile away, we kind of compared notes. And that's kind of when I started worrying a bit more. So there was the, the person who said, yeah, I turned on my sprinkler system, you know, before I left. You know, hopefully that will help, you know, keep the fire from setting our house on fire. So I thought, yeah, that's, that was a good idea. I should have done that. Um, or I, I grab my homeowner's insurance policy. So in case something happens, I don't have to convince State Farm that, you know, I am your good neighbor. Um, so I thought, oh, I, I, I didn't do that. Or, you know, the people that brought their cell phone chargers. So. Um, not just her cell phone. So I began to worry more and more. Not just I have my kids and wife out of the home, but, but these other things. And so um, then we had another set of friends. We, get, we drove to their home kind of further away, and they let us um, camp out in their basement for the night. And even though in this basement I had a mattress and, and the temperature was fine, my mind just kind of worried more and more about, you know, what should I have brought out instead? What other things could I have got in the, the wedding album, the photos of the kids? Um, the checkbook, um, the passports, um, and my mind just kept ra- you know, raging more and more about it. Um, so maybe your mind is like that. And fortunately, our home was fine. We drove back to it later in the morning. But maybe you have a lot of worries in your life. Maybe you could write out lists of your worries and wallpaper a room with all the worries that you have. Maybe you've had big events happen to you this past year. Maybe you've had something tragic happen to you this past year. Maybe you've had something tragic happen as a child, um, and that's something that you're still worrying about. Maybe you grew up in a home where there are a lot of worries that were voiced out loud, and maybe those worries are kind of a soundtrack to your life now. Um, as we think about the end of this year, we, we may kind of rationalize. We might think, well, you know, these are things that are, you know, that are okay to worry about because those really are big things. Um, maybe we rationalize um, 
as a parent or a job that maybe it's okay to worry about certain things. Maybe it makes me a better physician if I worry about certain things. Maybe it makes me a better parent if I worry about these things. I hoped when I picked this topic that I would grow in this, and I also hope maybe I wouldn't worry as much preparing this topic. So I'm not sure where you are in the state of worry as we end 2017, but let's see what we can learn from this passage. Can you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your text, um, what you spoke directly um, in Galilee. I ask that you meet everyone here with where they are with worry and that we leave here as changed people. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So Matthew chapter six, verse 25, the first word here is therefore. So as we study these 10 verses, we'll have to study a bit more than that to see why that therefore is what it's there for. So if we back up into the previous section, um, the subtitle in my ESV Bible is laying up treasures in heaven. And so this message before that Christ gave, some people could view it as a message to the rich, that he was telling the rich people, don't lay up your treasures here on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where robbers can break in, but lay up your treasures in heaven. And then the last verse in that section, verse 24, says no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so we have these different masters and this, this passage before might be a message to the rich and the passage we're gonna focus on might be a message to the poor. That Christ is saying that don't even worry about your necessities, don't even worry about where you're gonna eat or drink or your clothing. And then we see this repetition in our passage today in verses 25 and 31 and 34 saying, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. And this repetition is this underlining or highlighting in a sense of God saying, this is really important. So as we talk about worry, um, let's try to define worry. And um, the definition I'm gonna, I'm gonna be using is from John MacArthur. And uh, he defines worry as the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. The sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. You see, worry is more than a bad habit. Worry is a sin. And it's a sin that for some of us can be a very frequent sin. It might be our most frequent sin. And yet it is a sin. The word, uh, the word worry in English comes from a German word that means to strangle, um, to strangle or choke. And that's what worry can be, is that it's a, a mental or physical strangulation on us is what worry can be. So let's discuss theologically why not to worry, and this, this um, outline I borrowed from John MacArthur, and um, there's four points that he has that I read in a commentary about overcoming worry, and that worry is unfaithful, worry is unnecessary, worry is unreasonable, and worthy is unwise. So the first, worry is unfaithful because of our master. Worry is unfaithful because of our master. In verse 24, um, we read that a Christian's only master is God. And then in verse 25, Christ is saying, therefore, because of this, because God is your master, I tell you, do not be anxious. For believers to worry is to be, is to be disobedient to their master. 
If we're going to serve God, we need to trust God. And if we're not trusting God, we can't serve him. Um, if we're not trusting God, we are worrying. For the Christian, worry is forbidden and foolish and sinful. In, this, in our text in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. And that do not means do not. You need to stop. If you're worrying, you need to stop worrying. You need to stop worrying and never start again, is what Jesus is saying. And then what are we not to worry about? He says in verse 25, about your life. And the Greek word life here is suki, P-S-U-C-H-E, suki. And suki is an all-encompassing, kind of, kind of an all-inclusive word. So it's saying your life, your physical life, your mental life, your emotional life, your spiritual life, those are things not to worry about. It's not that I can compartmentalize and say, I won't worry about this, but I will worry about North Korea. God is saying not to worry about all of life, life in its fullest possible sense. Um, some of you know that I like science, so I thought maybe I would try to give a scientific example. So I brought a water bottle in case I, in case I was going to worry that my, my mouth would get parched and I'd have to stop the sermon. But if we think about worry, and if I was going to represent the liquid water in this water bottle and said this is the substance of worry, and we, we were maybe in a different church where there was a lot of fog, or let's say we had a lot of fog, and we took the water that was in here and made fog. The amount of fog that we could make would take up not only this room, not only the commons, but it could go into the parking lot, it could go in the intersection down to 16th. The amount of liquid water in here can spread out a lot, and really the substance of our worry may be quite small but the worries that come up in our mind may seem very, very big, but the actual substance of worry is nearly always extremely small compared to the size of its form in our minds and the damage it does to our lives. So what is the opposite of worry? The opposite of worry would be contentment. Contentment. So contentment should be the normal and consistent state of our mind. If you flip over to Philippians 4, and there's a lot of good um, verses in Philippians 4 that address worry. But let's listen to Philippians 4, 11 and 12 and see if you can dissent to what Paul says here about contentment. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So contentment, our uh, Christian's contentment is found in God and only in God. So what are some reasons to be content? So here's three reasons to be content. The first is that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. In Psalm 24:1, we read, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. First Chronicles 29:11, King David has a beautiful prayer. Uh, where he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Um, so God, uh, uh, everything that we have belongs to God. Even that amazing Christmas gift that you got, that great Christmas sweater, belongs to God. So if God owns everything and he takes something back, why worry about something that God's going to take back if it's his to begin with? John Wesley, he had a better response to his house being on fire than I did. 
So John Wesley was out and about and someone ran up to him and said, your house is burned down. And John Wesley replied, no, it hasn't because I don't own a house. The one I've been living in belongs to the Lord. And if it has burned down, that is one less responsibility for me to worry about. So everything belongs to God. A second reason for contentment is God controls everything. Also in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 12, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule, you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Psalm 22, 28, for the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And then in Daniel 2, 21, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings. Now, what Daniel wrote here weren't empty words for him about four chapters later in Daniel 6. He was in the lion's den, and God controlled the jaws of the lions. Um, and Daniel might have actually slept okay next to those lions, but it was the king who slept poorly. So God controls everything is another reason for contentment. And third, God provides everything. God provides everything. Some of you middle school and high school students may have been through um, Sunday seminars that, that uh, you learn the names of God, some of the different names of God. And one of those names is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord who provides. And this term Jehovah Jireh is what Abraham used in Genesis 22. And this is the section when he's about to sacrifice Isaac. And instead there's a ram that's provided in the thicket. And um, Abraham refers to, um, to God as Jehovah Jireh. So if Abraham saw that God provided, how much more should we trust Christ um, in those who know him and have his word? Philippians 4.19 adds that God will supply every need. So going back to verse 25, um, uh, Jesus tells us what you will eat or what you, what you will drink nor about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. So eating, drinking, and putting on, these weren't trivial things for people in Galilee. And for us as Western Christians in our day and age, these may be things that don't seem that big to us. Um, but for them, uh, running out of food or water was not a, a, a small thing. If they didn't get enough snow in the wintertime like now, they would have less water um, for rivers for their crops, um, their crops wouldn't be able to grow, they would be hungry, they couldn't have extra crops to sell for clothing. For, for, so for them, this was a real thing. And then Christ asked the, this rhetorical question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And so this fullness of life, this suki that we talked about, is more than merely taking care of our body. And we can be caught up in this idea of our body and be very fixated on our body in our world that we think we live because of our bodies and because of that we should live for our bodies. And the reality is that our bodies don't give us life, but God gives us life. Our, our life is given by God. So whether God gives us more or less of anything, it all belongs to him as the owner and as the controller and as the provider. So we need to thank God for what he gives and use it wisely and unselfishly for as long as he entrusts us with it. So worry is unfaithful because of our master. Um, second, Worry is unnecessary because of our Father. Worry is unnecessary because of our Father. This is in verses 26 through 30. Um, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Um, so a believer has absolutely no reason to worry because God is his heavenly father. It's as if Christ is saying here, have you forgotten who your father is? And then Christ illustrates in three ways by talking about food and life expectancy and clothing. So in verse 26, as Christ addresses food and he gives the example of the birds. And apparently there were many kinds of birds that migrated through Galilee. And it might've been that Christ pointed at some of these birds or maybe a flock of birds going by in Galilee. Um, and these birds don't have an intricate involved way of getting food. These birds aren't planting seeds and harvesting a crop and then putting it into barns. Um, they don't have an intricate involved way. It's, it's fairly simple for them. Um, but God has provided them with food, with food resources and instinct. Um, and if God cares for these relatively insignificant creatures, how much more will he care for those created in his own image and who have become his children through faith? Now, these birds weren't inactive. It wasn't that there was manna that just appeared for them, that they worked and were called to work heartily in Colossians 3.23. But these birds were still carefree. They weren't careworn like we often are. They weren't stockpiling their food to gloat over it. I guess foods really in the wild don't overeat. It's only when the birds are put in a cage that they will eat too much. So no birds are created in the image of God. No birds are gonna be recreated in the image of Christ like believers are. And no birds are promised airship with Jesus for eternity. So as God cares for these birds, how much more will he provide for us and provide food for us? And in verse 27, Christ looks at uh, the example of longevity. And your, your version of the Bible might use the word cubit. Um, and if you think about maybe someone's lifespan, they might talk about I've reached so many mileposts. Maybe I've reached 44 mileposts in my lifespan. And if I worry, can I add on a cubit? And a cubit is the length from the elbow to the fingertips. Can I add about a foot and a half to my mileposts by worrying? That wouldn't be much of an achievement, would it? So our culture is often fixated with trying to lengthen our life and we may exercise, eat carefully, take vitamins, um, get physical checkups. We might even now do DNA tests to see what we should worry about. Some people have gone to the lengths of trying to preserve themselves after they die and freeze themselves after they die. But God has bound the life of every person. And some of these common sense practices have done it in a reasonable way and looked at the right perspective may be beneficial. I might wash my hands before lunch today. I'll probably wear my seatbelt when I drive home today. Um, but we shouldn't be fixated um, on our body and trying to lengthen our lifespan. Um, we can't force God to lengthen our lifespan. Dr. Charles Mayo, who is one of the founders of the Mayo Clinic wrote, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who died of worry. So you can worry yourself to death, but you can't worry yourself to life. The gift of life is a gift from God to be used for his purposes, for spiritual and heavenly reasons, not selfish and earthly ones. 
Our concern should be to obey, honor, and please and glorify him, leaving everything else to his wisdom and care. Then in verses 28 through 30, Christ sees the, the illustration of clothing. And he might have pointed at wildflowers um, while he was there at, at the hillsides of Galilee. Many of the people that were listening to him may have only had one set of clothes. The one garment they had, they might have been wearing as he spoke to them, telling them not to worry about clothing. And what an indictment that is for us in our day and age when we spend so much time and money and effort with our clothes that we may be coveting stylish clothes and, and sitting with that. Um, that once, if we get these stylish clothes, don't be fixated on those and we, it may kind of boost our pride. It may feed our pride with those. We have all these stores for different kinds of clothes. We made a God out of fashion. So if God told these people that had one simple um, garment to wear, not to worry about clothes, what would he tell us? In verse 28, um, he says to consider the lilies, to consider, study these flowers. These flowers grow without toil on their part and their beauty can't be matched. Whether we look at them from a distance, whether we look at them up close, whether we look at them scientifically under a microscope, they have this amazing beauty. And yet these flowers are short-lived. They eventually they will die. And because there, wa there wasn't a lot of excess fuel um, in this area, um, these dead flowers might be used for fuel and they might use them in their ovens. When it talks about ovens, they would have clay ovens they would cook in. So they might use these dead wildflowers to cook with. So if God provides for these short-lived flowers, this amazing beauty, won't he surely provide for his children who are destined for eternal glory? Won't he, won't he surely provide for us? If he's gonna provide these beautiful garments for these flowers, don't we think he could also provide just some ordinary garment for us? So if I was presenting the sermon as a symphony or as a, as a uh, composition, I would try to crescendo with what I'm gonna say right now. Um, and this to me kind of spoke the most as I um, studied this. To be anxious, even about things we need to survive, is sinful and shows little faith. Our saving faith and a faith that relies on God to finish what he has begun may be different. Is it where I trust God and say, God, you redeem me, you save me from sin, you break the shackles of Satan, you're going to take me to heaven, to a place that you prepared for me and keep me there for all eternity, but I don't believe you're going to provide for me today? That should not be the case. Um, uh, am, I, am I not trusting God and his promises? Do I speak of the inerrancy of scripture, but then speak worry in the same sentence? Worry shows that we are mastered by our circumstances and by our finite perspectives and understanding rather than by God's word. Worry is not only debilitating and destructive, but it maligns God, it speaks evil of God, and it impugns God or attacks God as being untrue. So worry is unnecessary and we need to change it. A third point, worry is unreasonable because of our faith. Worry is unreasonable because of our faith. In verses 31 through 33, we see another therefore. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this therefore, saying that it's inconsistent with our faith to be worrying that worry is characteristic of unbelief. 
And we see this in verse 32. So these Gentiles are unbelievers. Um, they would seek these things. Those who have no hope in God naturally put their hope um, in expectations of the things they can enjoy now. And that should not be the case of believers. Since they felt that no Heavenly Father cared for them, um, there was reason for them to worry. And these Gentiles, they had their own man-made gods or idols, and these idols demanded much of them, and they promised little to the Gentiles, and they provided nothing for them. But in verse 32b, uh, we see the Father, know, the Father knows that you need them all. Um, that if our mind isn't centered on God, we have reason to worry. Instead, we should have our mind centered on God. And verse 33 gives a great positive command. So what we've read before these are these negative commands saying, do not, do not, do not. Now we have this positive command in verse 33. Um, so this cause of worry is seeking things of the world, and the cause of contentment is seeking the things of God's kingdom and his righteousness. And verse 33 starts off with but. So rather than these other things, instead of these other things, uh, we need to um, seek first God. Out of all the options we have, we need to first seek God, the one to whom we belong. And verse 33 elaborates to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Kingdom and righteousness. So first is kingdom. The Greek word of kingdom is basilia. And if you read earlier in chapter 6 of the Lord's Prayer, in thy kingdom come, this kingdom isn't a geographical territory, but it's God's dominion or rule. That we need to seek God first, seek first his rule, seek his will, seek his authority. That we need to, we need to lose ourselves in obedience to the Lord. And we can use other scripture that comments on this as well that helps, helps us to understand it more. Paul writes in, uh, in Acts 20, 24, Paul says in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course, my ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To seek first God's kingdom is to pour out our lives in the eternal work of our heavenly father. To seek God's kingdom is to seek to win people into that kingdom that they be saved and they would glorify God. Um, that truth and love and peace and joy would manifest in our lives um, from seeking first God's kingdom. In Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. The seeking the kingdom of God is yearning for the return of the king, that God would establish his kingdom on earth and usher in his eternal kingdom. In Colossians 3, 1, we're told to seek the things that are above. We need to seek as being absorbed in the search of, of these things. It needs to be a persevering and strenuous effort to obtain, a constant seeking. We need to give God the priority that is his, that is his due, acknowledge God as the king in our hearts and our lives, and encourage others to acknowledge God as the king in hearts and their lives. And second, righteousness. We need to seek God's righteousness. And this is really an outflow of seeking God's kingdom. The one God is recognized as the king that righteousness will prevail. Instead of longing after things of this world, we are to hunger and thirst for the things of the world to come, which are characterized above all else by God's perfect righteousness and holiness. This is more than longing for something to come in the future, but this is something that should manifest in our lives now, that as we have these heavenly expectations, it will manifest into holy lives. Uh, Paul continues in Colossians 3, verses two and three, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God? So this righteousness that is imputed to us, we have this legal standing with righteousness, should overflow um, in our day-to-day lives and in ethical, con- ethical conduct. The last phrase of verse 33, and all these things will be added unto you. So while people are concentrating on God's kingdom and its righteousness, um, that our Heavenly Father sees to it, they have food and drink and clothing. We see this echoed also in Romans 8.32, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So um, worry is unreasonable because of our faith. And fourth, worry is unwise because of our future. Worry is unwise because of our future. In verse 34, this is the third and last therefore. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we may be tempted to um, worry about tomorrow, and it's okay to make some reasonable provisions for tomorrow. Um, Doing that is sensible, but being anxious for tomorrow is foolish and unfaithful. That we have a God who's eternal, that our Heavenly Father who cares for us today will also hold us in his hand tomorrow. Um, Hear these amazing words from Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Some people can't find something to worry about today, so we think, well, let's worry about something tomorrow. But instead, tomorrow will take care of itself because tomorrow is already in God's hands. And each day has enough trouble of its own. It's not that tomorrow's a lot of trouble, so we should worry about it, but we should concentrate on today, concentrate on meeting the temptations and trials and opportunities and struggles we have today, relying on our Father to protect and provide as we have need. And God promises his grace for tomorrow and for every day until eternity, but he doesn't give us grace for tomorrow right now. He only gives us grace a day at a time as it is, as it is needed, um, not as uh, not as it may be anticipated. So when tomorrow arrives, there will be new troubles, but there will also be renewed strength. So as we conclude today and, and recap, we talked about worry defined as a sin. It's not just a habit. This is a sin of distress in the promise and providence of God. The worry is unfaithful because of our master. Um, there, there's at least three reasons to be content that everything belongs to God. God controls everything. God provides everything that you cannot serve God in a worry too. Worry is unnecessary because of our Father. If he cares for the birds and flowers, don't you think he will also care for you? Are the things in your life that Jesus, how he may have pointed to the birds and flowers, are the things you can point to in your life that reflect God's faithfulness? James Boyce wrote, if you worry, you are slandering God in regard to his wisdom, knowledge, power, goodness, and providential care. Third, worry is unreasonable because of our faith. We should seek God's interest first and see if your physical needs do not come to you naturally and without any concern on your part. And fourth, worry is unwise because of our future. The future will be managed perfectly by God, whether I worry about it or not. So you might be going through some Psalm 119 withdrawal this morning. 
And you might think maybe that's, that doesn't speak at all to worry. And I challenge you that I think many of those verses do. Verse two, seek him with their whole heart. If we seek God with our whole heart, how will that affect worry? Verse six, um, if our eyes are fixed on all your commandments, how will that help us with worry? In verse 11, I have stirred up your word in my heart. That is, we stir up God's word in our, in our head, it moves into our heart. How will that change our worry? And my hope that um, if you're in a small group, that you'll work through these things and work through, um, through these passages more and more. If you're not in a small group, don't worry about it. Um, don't worry about it, but I'd encourage you to get plugged into one. And if you look back at this past year of 2017 and you're having a hard time saying, what are ways that I've grown? Uh, what are ways that I've matured? Maybe a small group can be used for that. So as we think about applying this, I'm just gonna close with a few sets of verses that I think is, is evident about how to apply these things. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse seven, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Isaiah 26, three and four, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this past year and as we look for this new year and, and maybe we're tempted to worry about things to come. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you are our master, that you are the one to serve. We thank you there, Heavenly Father, you hold us. We thank you that it's unnecessary and unreasonable to worry. We thank you for this amazing future that you have planned for us. Lord, we give our worries um, and anxieties over to you, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. <laughs>